0: Hello, this is Scott Gents. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Story, which is an interview with Mr. Jim McGran. Hi, Jim. I'm really grateful to have you joining Sandbox Stories for this episode.
1: How are you, Scott? Great to be here. My pleasure to be here, actually. Luke, excited to uh, spend some time chatting with you.
0: I appreciate that. We've known each other for a long while, but I'd like to understand a lot about you more. So, you know, this is really interesting. You're the first non-ECP to be on Sandbox Stories interviews, and you know, you've lived a career supporting ECP. So I'm really grateful for that commitment. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with ECPs at that point in your career.
1: Absolutely. Well, one, it's an honor to to be the first non-ECP. So thank you very much. And and you're right. Um, it's especially now, um, you know, working with and supporting and and uh, and being there for independent eye care professionals is 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 what I spend my days doing. But. How I ended up here, you know, the the first half of my career, I was an IT consultant. I'm an engineer by training, um, was an IT consultant for about 15 years. And then a good friend of mine who was the IBM rep at a company called Marshawn Eyewear that that a lot of people in the industry know, uh, introduced me to the owners, uh, Al Berg, uh, Larry Roth, and Jeff White. Uh, They were searching for their first chief information officer, CIO. Um, back in 1999, and uh, he asked me to come in and and do a presentation for them on the role of a CIO, and uh, so I did that, and we had a great discussion. And at the end of it, Jeff White, who was the acting CIO, he said, "Okay, well, what are you doing on Monday?" And I said, "I said, well, I I have my project. I gotta I gotta go back to work on my project." And and he said, "No, look, I'm serious. You know, we're we're really interested." So it was uh it was really one of the the best moves I ever made in my career joining those guys in ninety nine at a point where their business were, was growing. they were expanding internationally and then uh, and then in two thousand and eight, we were sold uh, to to VSP. So I spent ten years at Marchand helping grow the business, expand internationally, grow the office mate practice management business along with ed buffington and and team there had a had a great time and then, when VSP purchased Marshawn, um, uh, the CEO at VSP at the time, Rob Lynch, asked if I would relocate from New York to to California and run the merger of, of Ifinity and OfficeMate. And at that point in time, you know, once becoming a part of VSP, and obviously uh, we can talk a lot about uh, VSP and the history, but the history of VSP, right, is what's founded... BSP was founded in 1955 by nine independent optometrists in the, uh, in the Oakland area. So always has had a history of, of having independent eye care professionals at its core. So the minute I got involved at BSP, we were, we were trained and educated on the importance and the role that the IECP plays in the community and in, in, and in the, in the business world of the, uh, of the optical industry. So, um, just enjoyed it, and 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 really, for me, the best part of it was when I took over VSP Vision Care. I, I went around and, and toured the country and met with a lot of of independents at that point in time. And I always remember telling the story of one of the first guys I met, and hopefully I'm not using his name in vain or his work, but a guy named Tom Arnold, and I always remember Tom's name, a, a doctor based in in uh, in in, uh, in Texas. And I remember being in his practice and he had this wonderful medical experience for the patient where they came in and they really felt as though they were getting a, a great eye health exam that not only focused on their eye health, but their overall health and wellness. And then you watched the flow and it just seamlessly moved it into a really beautiful retail experience. And for me, the light bulb went off and said, you know, that's what, that's where we need to go. That's where we need to go as an industry because the, the the average consumer, the average patient wants to go to their local doctor, wants to go to their independent eye care professional, has that great relationship. And when I saw a practice like Tom's or a practice like uh, Lori at in uh, Salem, Ohio, who I've worked with Lori for a long time, you, you just saw that they had figured out, how do I feel like I've gotten this great medical experience, but then at the same time have a wonderful retail experience for buying my materials? And it just it got me hooked, and it made me realize that some of these businesses, while we are not the people, the, the businesses, whether it's VSP or Healthy Eyes Advantage, where I am now, we're not the ones that are treating patients and and helping them see and and all of that, but we can we can play a role in that, and we can assist and we can support. And it's it's an industry, again, I, I fell in love with over 20 years ago, and that but that time at BSP and this time now working with ICPs has just strengthened that for me.
0: It's really fun, right? From an engineer who's an IT guy to referring to the eye care industry as wheat, that's uh, really nice. a story of so many people in the industry, and uh, it's just really fun to hear your path on that journey. So talk yeah. a little bit about this new gig. Uh, you're with Healthy Eyes Advantage. What are you doing today?
1: So, Healthy Eyes Advantage is made up of uh, there were four, uh, the four largest buying groups in the optical industry uh, three years ago were uh, Block Buying Group, HMI, uh, Vision West, and CE. So, uh, Block in Florida, HMI in Mississippi, and then Vision West and CE out in California. Um, a private equity firm, Nautic Partners, back in uh, November of 2017, purchased all four at the same time. And we've been, uh, over the last few years, what we've been doing is merging the four entities. Uh, we provide uh, group purchasing services for 10,000 independent eye care professionals, primarily ODs, but also dispensing ophthalmologists and opticians as well. And uh, you know, our goal is, and what we're working towards is really creating the next generation marketplace for independent eye care professionals. So you have the buying groups, which I mentioned, which were the founding companies of Healthy Eyes Advantage. You've then had the, you know, the alliance groups that came into being like the vision sources of the world. And now we're looking to really be that that next step to to become the trusted advisor, more than just offering, uh, you know, and we're gonna continue to offer the purchasing power and the purchasing solutions for the practices, but also start to help with things like technology integration and consulting. We've we've just recently uh, signed an agreement and are working closely with the Williams Group, obviously a well-known consulting group within the industry, to really help the, the practices uh, thrive uh, as they move forward. We all have been through a very difficult year. You know, if we look at 2020, our main goal at that point was supporting the, the uh, practices that are our our members, we refer to them as members of, of the Healthy Eyes Advantage Buying Group, but supporting them, however we can, from you know ex, uh, expanding financial terms, uh, whatever help they needed in in order to survive that period. And like you and I were talking before we went online, right? March and April, the the drop in business was you'd never seen that before in the in the history of the industry. Uh, then trying to figure out how do we see patients in this COVID world and What's the workflow in the practice? All of these things, you know, we all, whether it was our business or the business of the doctor, we all needed trusted advisors to help. So, we've been very focused with ourselves, and we have a uh, Dr. Justin Manning is our is the OD, who's our head of professional strategies. Great doctor, uh, uh, practiced in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We're, it's it's been a real blessing having having Justin on the team. He oversees. He grew up basically. There was no choice for him. He was going to be an optometrist. His dad was an optometrist, so he grew up in an optometry practice, so he's he's seen it all, and he's been really helpful in us uh, setting the strategies for not only what we can do and support and help on the on the uh, the cost of goods, which is an important part of running a practice, but also now expanding into continuing education and consulting to really help the practices thrive. and and you know, I'm sure we'll talk uh, during our time. There's so much opportunity out there, right? There's opportunity to, to, to grow these practices, to grow our industry as a, as a whole. And, uh, you know, we want to play a role in helping support independent eye care professionals take advantage of that opportunity moving forward.
0: That's a super interesting model. And let's come back to it. I want to go mm-hmm. way back. Okay. You said you're an oldest child. And it seems yes, to me that that's a really common trait for people who become leaders. In fact, I'm a real big believer in the book called Birth Order, which says yeah. that. Um, <laughs> what did you learn from your parents growing up and uh, being the oldest of all those kids? Sure.
1: No, it's great. Yeah, it's it's an amazing experience. I saw your I saw your interview with Dr. Wynne, who's a I'm a I'm a big fan. You know, she has like you said in there a great social media presence, and I I wasn't surprised to find out that. She also is the oldest of seven. So for me, you know, being the oldest of seven, right, you, you get you get forced into almost very early in your life uh, a leadership role. Because once you get past, uh, as uh, I have a friend who jokes, you know, when you have one kid, you know, you can play two-on-one. Then when you have the second one, you can play man-to-man. But then once you get to the third, you're in a zone, so once my parents got the four, five, or six, you know, the two or three oldest, we were kind of on our own and had to figure out how to manage. But it, it really was, it was a, it was a, a it was fun growing up in a, in a, in a large family. I said I do think, and and my wife and I, we have two kids, and and uh, I think also some people who come from large families end up having large families themselves. For me, it was like it's you know you want to be able to stay focused on the kids and help them and, and and in the world today i think they need that so we we limited ourselves to the two but definitely learned my dad uh you know my dad worked from the time i was 4 years old my dad worked 7 days a week um, funny story with him was he was actually in the seminary we we i was raised catholic he was he was going to be a catholic priest but obviously took a different direction and ended up having seven children with my mother. so I guess he, he had some other uh, ideas in his head so he, I, and I'm happy that he made that choice otherwise we wouldn't be having the conversation. but I think what I, what I learned from him was a couple of things. one uh, the the um, you know work ethic. you know obviously you have seven kids you're gonna have to work to provide heat. from the time I was four years old he worked seven days a week. He worked at what's now uh, Empire Blue Cross, he was a, a national account rep in the Empire Blue Cross for almost 40 years and on the weekends he worked in the school district where we uh, where we all went to school all seven of us went as a as a watchman and he worked in the security office. so the way we would see him on the weekends would be he'd be down at the school and and this is what we just got used to you know he'd be at the school working but then we had access to the gym and you know so and he'd let us bring our friends and so. It was definitely different having a father that worked seven days a week, but it wasn't like he was absent. I saw him. I, I sat with him there at times where he helped me with homework. And so it was, it was different, but I absolutely learned a ton. And um, it, was all, it was also interesting to me. I didn't think I was learning it then, but I, I did see it over my career. I remember him talking about why he joined Blue Cross when he first got out of Korea, got back from Korea. He served in the Korean War. And he said he wanted to go work someplace that was focused on helping people. And in the beginning of Blue, the Blue Crosses of the world, they were set up to make sure that people had access to healthcare and were able to go in and see their doctor. And he loved that. And I saw him, he loved the part of, you know, if someone had a problem with a claim, spending hours fixing the claim. But then over his career, business shifted right got more business focused started saying to him listen you can't spend two hours on that claim hand that off to the person over here you need to keep moving the business forward and doing doing other things and I saw him uh, not as happy as say earlier in his career so for me it sort of it stuck with me on things like uh, how important corporate culture is and how how corporations, uh, treat uh, you know treat their customers how they treat their employees and and the importance of that and and just fast forwarding if I think about you know vSP I remember when I first got to VSP I would hear doctors talk about the early days of VSP right when it was probably the California vision service plan and the doctors really felt as though they were a part of something right they were they were really funding the working capital of the company but They felt a part of it where, well, okay, we help fund it, but then patients come into my office and it's a, it's a partnership. And they, you know, they tell stories about, and then at the end of the year, as long as the financials were met, they'd have a big dinner and everyone would get their, uh, their working capital money back. So they get a check and there'd be a big celebration. And I think for in certain businesses, we, we got away from that feeling of, of a community. And one of the things we we're our desire with Healthy Eyes Advantage is to get back to that point where the independent eye care professionals feel a part of something, that they're part of the HEA community, that it's something they want to belong to and have an influence on. And that's our goal. We still have work to do. Right. We're still uh, getting our integration finalized. But for me, if we are able to achieve that, that would be outstanding because I, I do feel it's something that's, that's been missing of late of, you know, that feeling of, of community and, and I belong. So for the ODs, I know for sure it's belonging to the profession and belonging to um, being that, that brother and sisterhood of, of optometry. And I know how, how important that is, but I wanna take that even beyond that and feel you know, feel that community with HEA, similar to the stories I heard of the early days of VSP. and And that does go back to what some of the things I learned from my dad.
0: You know, optometry has had optometric organizations from the AOA to state affiliates to local societies. Um, but as the practice has changed from how we get our paycheck, uh, some of us independent practices, some of us not, um, it's changed the dynamic in those locations. And that may, means that sometimes they get that community elsewhere. And I think you're right to create another place where a sense of community is something that'd be obtained and it's not that different than your dad learned along the way. Even the practice itself is almost a little community.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I um, agree. So yeah. the, 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 like you said, the local, and we're not in any way, we, we're not in any way, and I hope this it doesn't get taken that way, not in any way looking to replace Local societies, state associations, the AOA, or you know, we have we have partnerships with over twenty of the state associations that we work very closely together, where they help support us, we help support them. That's what I mean by the community is is supporting those those communities that are already there, and then also saying you know so that someone really feels proud that hey, by the way, I'm also an H E A member and I do these things with H E A and it, with my practice on top of what I get from my other societies and organizations.
0: Yeah, I mean, every business owner can look at the overlapping Venn diagram, them being in the middle of these circles that intersect, and it's not ever been construed, and I would not allow it to be construed, as HEA is saying we're going to be something different, come to us only. Yeah. It's a matter of adding, so that's that's what I would really want to applaud. Okay, so you shared with me some interesting stories in life. <laughs> First of mm-hmm. all, your college roommate and best man at your wedding went on to become an astronaut?
1: Exactly, yeah. Mike, he's still a great friend. We see him all the time. His name, some of you may have seen him on uh, on The Big Bang Theory, Mike Massimino. If you're a fan of The Big Bang Theory, he, he, one of the characters was becoming an astronaut, and he coaches him. Very, very funny if you see those episodes. But just a great guy. We met first day, first day, first, freshman year. Hit it off, and and we've been friends ever since. And it's you know it's just amazing to see what he's done and accomplished. He he was on two missions to the uh, Hubble Telescope, and uh, repaired the Hubble Telescope twice. And uh, you know, but is the most down to earth, uh, wonderful guy you'd ever want to meet. So uh, we'll maybe maybe someday we'll we'll get him on the. Uh, we we'll get him here in the sandbox. He he's a lot more interesting. He's actually held the Hubble telescope in his hand. I've only shaken his hand, but uh, you know it's 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 been interesting because I I got to go to one of his landings, which is a very special. You know, they they have a, an area set up for families, and and uh, and it was really cool to you know they tell you what's going to happen. You hear the sound barrier broken twice as the the nose and the tail come come into the. Uh, come into the atmosphere just really really cool and you know for me that was an amazing day and so great to see him and then i remember fast forward thinking of him he wasn't there but that poor mission where the people coming back uh, i think it was the it was the columbia where they didn't make it back i i was always thinking those families that were sitting in the seat that i was that day and you know what you know the the sacrifice that these astronauts and the other other people you know other people service men and women and and uh, law enforcement, the 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 risks that they take every day uh, to make our world a better place, you know, you can't uh, I I can't thank them enough for or and and being you know being Mass's friend is uh, you know makes me very very proud. He's an amazing guy, and and what he's done is 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 really really exciting.
0: I don't think there's a better compliment than he's a down to earth astronaut. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so that Tell
1: us about mm-hmm. the adoption of your son. Sure, yeah. So our, our, uh, our second child, our, our, our daughter Taylor, was born in 1990. And, uh, you know, like a, like a lot of couples, we, we had some challenges uh, having Taylor. And then we thought, you know, through with our doctor, we had gotten it figured out. But then my wife said we had a couple of miscarriages. And one day we saw my, my daughter playing with our nephew, who's about the same age. And we realized, you know, I don't think we want to stop at one but you know we're having these these medical challenges to have a second one so we started to look into adoption and at that point in time I don't know if you remember but there was a fame there was a story going on called baby Jessica where she had been adopted was with the with the family for two years and then you know her mother had been in prison or was a was a drug addict or something and then the adoption laws weren't solid at that point so the, the baby ended up being given back to the mother when she cleaned herself up and got and and you can argue and discuss all of these things, but we watched that and we said, you know, we we want to make sure we don't we protect ourselves from that that type of loss again because we were watching the adoptive parents and just be devastated. So we started to look into all kinds of programs and we ended up uh, uh, doing an international adoption in the, in the country of Colombia. Um, our son was born just south of uh, Cali, Columbia. Our daughter was uh, uh, six years old. And um, the the, pr- the way the process worked was we had to spend a month in Columbia. But the, the first day we were there, we, we went to the orphanage and, and uh, uh, Trevor was given to us and he went back to the hotel with us. But then the legal process, uh, we had to spend the month. And at that point, I worked for IBM. I couldn't thank them enough. They were so supportive. They allowed me to work remotely uh, from from down there before remote working, like it is now, <laughs> became uh, is is what we do. But back then it wasn't as common. And uh, you know, it's it's been an it's been an amazing experience. Couple of things we remember: walking into that orphanage, and uh, you know, we we Trevor was given to us, and then you start looking around at all these other kids, and said, well, I remember us getting back to the hotel." How do we get? How do we take ten more of these kids? You know, because right. you could tell you had the young ones, but then the ones that were starting to get older, and they were taking care of the little kids, but they were placing out, and it's it's just so sad that every child deserves a permanent home. And uh, you know, Trevor's been a, just a, a real blessing in our life, and we've uh, you know we we've seen him go through through challenges, and and uh, you know getting. Um, Dealing with things, you know, you, you don't think of it when you're you're born and you have your parents. And you know, I remember being the oldest of seven, as we talked about, saying, "I I, I wish I was adopted by my friend down the street who's an only child and he has all these toys and everything." But when you when you take it seriously, look at these kids that are adopted. Like even Trev came into a loving home. His sister loved him. His parents loved him. But dealing with that um, abandonment, right? At some point, coming to the realization that the person that should love you more than anything in the world was willing to give you up. And how could that be? And what, and so, you know, he went, he went through a lot in his life and we were there for him. And we, we worked with great professionals and he's now, he's a, he was a, he was a tremendous soccer player, clearly adopted because uh, he didn't get that from me. I never, I, uh, I played football basketball and baseball, but I, and I coached his soccer. But by the time he got to second grade, I had, uh, my skill level was gone. I realized I was coaching them completely incorrectly, but he went on to do some, some really great things. He got to play in, uh, Argentina and Greece and, you know, and now he's a, uh, certified professional trainer. He lives in Chicago. Uh, he does the, the personal training and he also, uh, uh, drives for Amazon and, uh, is just, uh, you know, a great guy and amazing part of our life, but it's, uh, it's a it's a it's a wonderful experience and um, there's there's so many kids out there you know anybody watching this that's thinking about it or or is at a point in their life there are so many kids in need of a of a permanent home and if you if you have a place in your your home and your heart um, definitely look into it because it's a it's an amazing thing. Yeah, there's so much wonderful adoption and my family
0: some of my close friends, and uh, I give you credit, you and your wife credit, for expanding your family that way and taking care of at least one of those kids. And it's such a wonderful story. Um, you said that you were uh, at a point a member of the Wall
1: Street Journal CEO Council. What was yeah, that? This was, that was amazing. So uh, it's a really it's a great group. There's about 150 CEOs that are part of this CEO Council And um, I think if I remember back, the statistics are that group of people when when they were in the room at the comp, there was a conference every year in November that I got to attend a couple of times. Uh, I think they were responsible for five trillion dollars in revenue, uh, over five million employees, just some amazing number from all different and and from all different industries, right? Healthcare, distribution, fashion, uh, technology. And basically the, the Wall Street Journal would put on this great event, amazing speakers. They always had it in DC. So you got to hear um, a lot of, a lot of speakers from DC from you know, depending it doesn't matter really what your political uh, likes and dislikes are, you were hearing from both sides of the aisle, right. I remember the one conference you know we were hearing from Paul Ryan, who was a speaker of the House. We were hearing from, um, you know, other uh, other Democratic leaders. And it was, you know, it was just a just that experience was was great. And then we would go into breakout groups and we'd be assigned different topics about uh, regulations and uh, regulations with China and what what happens there. And based on our industries, we get put together. And that I always found so interesting, li- being able to listen to other CEOs and how they were tackling problems. So. Uh, I, I did when I took over. Rob was on. Uh, I I succeeded Rob as the CEO at BSP in 2015. So Rob went in um, uh, in 13 and 14, and then I went in 15 and 16. And really, just a a really fun group to uh, to to be a part of, and and really, uh, really, really, um, really interesting. A funny story. as uh, so I was thinking that when I was at, you had Paul Ryan, and then you had. Elizabeth Warren and this is speak later and this isn't uh I'm not trying to make a political statement here but Elizabeth Warren was up there and you know part of it was I'm sitting there thinking like does she remember who the audience is that she's speaking to because she probably speaks every day right so she gives a speech but she was doing her Elizabeth Warren like she was railing on you know corporate America and business and but you know I'm, I'm looking around and there's all all these studios just basically saying you know we need to, we need to get rid of you guys and we need to fix all this and I think at one point I was I think I was like I was kind of shaking my head like what's going on and from the stage I hear her say oh you can keep shaking your head and I'm like uh oh this and I'm thinking oh my gosh this is be, is this hopefully this isn't being filmed because I have this huge Irish head so it's probably easy to see. It was just like I remember I remember that. And again, this is not a, a political statement. It's more like I was thinking, why? How are you saying this to this group of people? And and again, I'm a, what my beliefs are about. I believe government and business need to come together and and, and work to solve the problems. Government alone isn't going to do it. And business alone is definitely not going to do it. We need to work together. So I think as I was listening to her, I was it was my perspective of. We gotta get this fixed, but I, she she called me out. So I always tell the story. Hey, I got I got re- I got yelled at by someone who's running for president. So you know.
0: As <laughs> a side note, I mean my CEO-ship was uh, of a smaller company than what you've experienced, but I took a CEO at the bottom of the food chain approach to business. That the people on the front lines are really the most important. And I suppose that whether it's Paul Ryan or Elizabeth Warren are put in the contemporaries of today that the reason the CEOs, the salaries that they're paid, the compensation they receive, is looked at as awful is that it's out of line with those at the front line. Take all the the, the risky political commentary out. Right. How did you feel about driving the people at the front line when you were CEO? Yeah,
1: that's yeah, great. It's a great question. Another I, you know, for me, another big learning. This was when I was uh, I was working for Anderson Consulting, which is now uh, Accenture, during my IT consulting days. We were doing a project at AT and T, and we were in a division there where the guy who was the president. I remember being in his office, and he had the the org chart of the of the of uh, his division there, but it was upside down, and he was on the bottom. And then like the customer service reps were at the top and that stuck with me forever. And I I talked about that, you know, whether it was when I was leading Ifinity mate or I was running VSP or even now with HEA, I am 100 percent a believer in the fact that as the CEO, yes, you need to set the strategy and set direction and help help with corporate culture and be decisive and enabling and adaptable and all the things that are important to be a good CEO. But if you don't have the the frontline, the troops with you and believing in you, it was, it, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really important thing. Another learning. And, and you know, uh, you know, Steve Baker, right? Steve, Steve used to run affinity. Steve and I worked together very closely, even before I got to, um, got there, and then and then obviously as we were merging the businesses. And this was me. This was a big trip. When I transitioned from Marshawn to move out to Sacramento to VSP, I, you know, Marshawn, as you know, was a very entrepreneurial company. Al Berg was the CEO. Al made the decisions, right? It was a spoken hub model. Even if you were out here, you better come in and ask Al. If you make a decision out here and it goes horribly wrong, he's going to take you out. And it was a very command and control style that worked for them and, and, and obviously worked for them to grow the business the way they did, but a completely different mentality than VSP. I went out there, I remember I was first addressing the iFinity OfficeMate team, which was now my team, right? And and someone asked me a question about like where their, how their role fits into, you know, what we're doing. And I'm sort of looking and I remember Baker popping up and saying, here, Jim, this is what they want to know is we have the strategy, but they want to understand what their role in driving that strategy is. And again, having spent 10 years in the spoken hub command and control model, I had to change my thinking of, God, that's that's brilliant. That's if, if you have, and, and I always think of the, um, there's that famous picture of John F. Kennedy visiting uh, the Space Center, the Kennedy Space Center. And he's talking to the janitor and he, and the, and he asked the janitor what, what he does here. And the janitor said, I'm here to put a man on the moon. And to me, that's the most important sh- in that model of the flipped over or chart. If that person on that front line that's dealing with the customer or even that janitor that's keeping the office clean so that you have a productive work environment if they understand every day why they're walking through the door or why they're a part of the company there's nothing like it there's not so you know i always, I always thank steve for you know enlightening me there that that john f kennedy quote and and really the that the culture there during that time at bsp was make sure that the employees understand that here's our vision here's our strategy and here's the role I play in it. You know, if it simplest if you're in a manufacturing company, if your job is to move this from here to there, as long as you understand the reason I'm moving this from here to there is because we're trying to achieve this. I, I mean, that's that's the greatest, you know, the greatest gift you can give your employees and the greatest gift you can give your shareholders if the company's all firing on those those same cylinders.
0: And there's so much applicability to the eye care practice and the way our audience should think about how they run their business. And uh, you and I both had the opportunity to be available to the business insights of General Stanley Crystal. And uh, as a reference, anybody that wants to check out a book called Team Teams, it speaks to this so mm-hmm. well. One other thing before we get back to the industry. You keep playing cards with your high school friends. How important is that?
1: Uh, it's, it, it, it's amazing. I guess this is another thing. I, I go back to my dad and my, my friends say this all the time. They remember my dad saying that. He, Cause he loved this group of friends, right? He always said, you're so lucky that you have these friends because, you know, and, and he would every once in a while, he wouldn't always give it to me. So <laughs> they're lucky to have you, but you're lucky that these are your friends because they're good guys and they're solid citizens. And, you know, so we've, this group. Uh, these guys that get together once a week we've been we've been friends since fifth or sixth grade and you know when, obviously when I was living in California we didn't see them as much but since we came back to New York in 17 we on a monthly basis this group gets together and we play cards and you know it pretty much takes us all the way back to to uh, high school and you know obviously we you know we're making fun of each other and giving everybody each other a hard time but it's it, it's a it's a closeness that you know is is really you know and again my one friend always brings it up. He said your dad always talked about how how important your friends are, and 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 it really has. And we we sadly lost one of the guys um, in November of eighteen. One of the you know one of the group sadly passed away from a from a heart attack. Way too young at at, at fifty six. Just another amazing guy who I mean, was a huge part. Actually, he was the guy in my story earlier about. Uh, introducing me to Marshawn, he was the guy who introduced me to Marshawn, Mike Cleary, and uh, we lost Mike, and I think that even even brought the group closer together. So we we really have been pretty religious about not missing our monthly meetings, making sure making sure we're seeing each other, and uh, and uh, but yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. It's a it's a. It's a tremendous group. I mean, I take a lot of abuse at times there, but it, it's all worth it. It's all worth
0: it. It's so funny with those high school or college friends how quickly you just revert back that nobody <laughs> thinks about themselves in their body and mind today. And uh, for you know, all of our men and women friends who listen to this, you you should take you know, real grandness out of those relationships. Back to the uh, market. Your background as the leader of ESP gives you really unique insights on the impact of managed vision care on optometry. Can you pontificate today away from that business what that looks like, their impact looks like, all managed vision care plans over the next five years?
1: Sure. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. Whenever I, um, you know, whenever I've gotten the opportunity to talk about the industry or or, uh, get asked questions, there's one statistic i always open with and it's a i think it jobson's the one who tracks this but 75% of all eye exams delivered in the united states have some form of managed vision care associated with it so that's a, that's a really important number that it, it it's hard to and i know as a practitioner and this isn't only in vision right dentists or primary care doctors they would all love to see insurance companies go away. I get it. We all get it. When you get those explanation, the benefits of what the, you know, what the dentist wanted to charge and what the insurance company paid. it's like, you know, okay, I get it. And I, and I think, in eye care, it's even been, it's, it's even been tougher. You know, when you, you know, you understand and, and having seen the schooling that it go, you go through to become an optometrist those four years and you'll, know, how How much you learn about giving and delivering a comprehensive eye exam, you know and and to have it, then I get it from the doctor's perspective, perspective, marginalized down to you know forty bucks, fifty bucks, sixty bucks. It's sort of you know, I've definitely gotten hit, and you may have been in the room or had be you know when you get hit with him, I spend more to get my hair cut than i than, than you're uh, you know then you're paying me and and I and I understand it. The challenge on, on that side of it is, I, and I used to say this when I was speaking of VSP, I'd say, as a VSP, I'd say, you know, I'd love to, Scott, I'd love to pay you $200 for an eye exam. And you would only go, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. And then I said, do you know how many VSP patients you would see? Zero. Because you wouldn't be able to sell a plan to a to a company that was paying doctors $200. They, they just look at those things. So, I believe the important thing is we are not gonna see we're not gonna see vision care and vision care companies go away in the next and let's let's stay in the five year time frame, right? So what we have to figure out is we have to understand how do we leverage these 75% of these eye exams that are coming in that have some form of managed vision care? How do we ensure that we're, we're able to effectively see them in our practice practice and obviously figure out the ways to make money on that person coming in the door. Because at the end of the day, yes, being a doctor and the eye health and overall health and wellness of the patients is paramount. But in order to do that, you have to be running your business, which as we talked about earlier in the, in the example about, you need this great medical experience and this great retail experience and it isn't simple, but on the managed vision care side, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that can be done. One, consumers absolutely need to be better educated, by 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 the plans, or you know maybe it's by the by the doctors, on exactly what their benefit is, what's the coverage. Where I've seen so many times where where a patient walks in, and there's just after the exam, the exam's usually fine, and they get it either. They pay a $15 copay or it's included or whatever. But once you get into the materials purchasing space, the confusion and then the frustration of the consumer, you just see it. It gets heightened. They don't understand. Okay, what's my frame allowance? What's my lens allowance? Do I get this or not? It's way too complicated. So just because we know those plan members are going to be showing up in practices for the foreseeable future It's how do we educate them on what that benefit is worth to them? Because it does have a value, right? It's a, it's a, it's a really a prepaid discount that they're entering the practice with. And then it's how do you take that to the next level? Then very important. And I know, you know, this again, because both our, our software businesses, right? Always we're trying to figure out the best way to help doctors with frame board management and practices, having the right, Mix of products, and again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, and I know I am, but we have to help figure this out, especially for the independent. Is you want to be able to in your office have a product that can keep a someone that's going to go willing to walk out the door and buy frames uh, on Zenni Optical or other online players. You have to have an answer for that. All the way up to you have to have an answer for the person that really price is no object and I don't care. And I wanna have a high-end designer frame with the best lens. And I get it, trying to manage that inventory. But I do feel like a lot of times we miss the opportunity because we don't have the proper product mix within that dispensary to to meet the needs. Because if you really think about it, there should be no reason for someone who's shown up in, in your office with this prepaid discount and, and this relationship with you, the most important thing, the doctor-patient relationship, why they should ever leave. And and having that right product mix is key. And there is, a lot of companies have tried, a lot of individual frame companies have, have tried with the solutions, but again, sometimes that comes across too self-serving, like it's m- my frame company is gonna manage your frame board. Well, you're- often it is
0: self-serving.
1: Yeah, right. So, <laughs> So we have to come up with more of an industry-wide solution that helps independents say, based on where my practice is, what my managed vision care mix is, the types of patients I'm seeing, these are the frames and lenses I should be offering in my practice. And right now, there isn't a solution for that yet. My sense is that you hit it right when you said
0: that 75% of inbound patients are coming with a managed care plan coverage, there has got to be education, that the education, I think, is incumbent upon the managed vision care plans and that the value that they try to explain and do it over and over again is that you get to see a value eye care professional, where we all know that, for the most part, the reason there's negativity to that person coming in with a plan is that the patient perceives it as access to a discounted product. And it seems like a nuance, but I don't think it's that nuanced. And I, yeah. I hope that anybody who's listening to you and me today that's from that space would think about continuing to tell the story uh, in the way uh, who is really the hero. The hero mm-hmm. is the doc. And if we yeah. can get that the story updated, that will help. Um, wow. Go back to Healthy Eyes Advantage. In the next couple of years, you've got this sort of place where a person can hang their hat, be a member. What is Healthy Eyes Advantage doing? Are a tangible thing or two you can explain that will positively impact the profession?
1: Sure. So you know, first and foremost, we we are not going to get away from what what these founding companies, uh, the services these founding companies provided, the practices, right? The the reduced cost of goods sold, continuing on their behalf to negotiate the best pricing possible with. You know, we we uh, work with over 250 strategic partners, uh, strategic vendor partners in the industry. So the doctors really have ultimate choice. It's not us telling them, oh, you have to work with this contact lens company or this lens company. This they really have ultimate choice within our model. So we're going to keep doing that, providing consolidated billing, which the practice is like where they can work with as many vendors as they want, but they get one bill a month. So they can better manage their cash flow. And then for the vendors, we provide the service on the back end is that we pay the bill on behalf of the 10,000 independent eye care professionals, and then we we have to go and collect it if, if they don't if they don't pay. So that core service, which is what the buying groups were founded on, stays, and it's our foundation. Where, where we really see it going is this this next phase, and I'll start at the end point and then work back we want to we want to become the trusted advisor of the independent eye care professionals we want them to feel a part of the HEA community we want them to come to us with questions varying from things we've talked about product mix what technology should I have in my practice uh, what 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 how should my practice be structured what should it look like any kind of questions they've had and we've seen it in other industries and and that's our ideal end goal if we can get to that point where the doctor and the practice is feeling hey HEA is my partner in this I want to get there the way the way we uh, the way we're attempting to get there is as we're completing our integration of the four businesses right we're, we're moving to one standard IT platform uh, we're gonna get to a single a single set of deals a- across each company obviously had its own deals standardization across that. But then we're going to move into, with the help of the Williams Group, something we're calling the Practice Advantage, which is a very cost-effective management consulting program for HEA practices. So we're not talking about spending thousands and thousands of dollars up front. It's a a manageable monthly fee where you're getting access to the consultants uh, of the Williams Group, the consultants that we'll have internally. At, at HEA and under uh, Dr. Manning's uh, purview. And we're, we're really excited that I think the consulting piece, the goal there is to really show the pra- help the practices uh, move to a, a growth path, show them how they can grow, how they can survive and thrive, help them with things like manage vision care and product mix and, and how to manage that within their space. So between continuing our, our core value of being the, uh, the the providing the buying group services and then adding to it and supplementing it with the consulting and the training and the education we believe we can get to that you know we have to earn that trusted advisor role right I remember uh, working with an HR professional at, at VSP and we were talking about some some people um, people that were working for me and I was we were talking about some challenges and then I, I said uh, I said something and she said to me, well, well, Jim, have have they given you permission to be their leader? And I was sort of I rolled I rolled back to my Al Berg mentality of, what do you mean? I'm the leader. They should listen to me, right? But no, it's it, like it was a very interesting point that they those, those employees, those frontline workers, your your team members, they have to give you the permission to lead them. And I, I feel the same way with the doctors, right? With the HEA members, we have to earn their trust. We have to earn their respect. We have to, you know, earn their business every day. And hopefully we can get to that point where we earn this position of being their trusted advisor. But that's our, you know, that's our goal and where we want to be.
0: And so many optometrists have taken so many different bits and bytes of advice from so many different sources over time, that I think sometimes they close their minds to what else can be said. How many different ways can I learn about filling the gap, multiple pair signals? And yeah. um, my advice, or Sandbox Storage is predicated on the idea of people consuming of a whole bunch of different types and never-ending pursuits of improvement. And uh, I'm really glad you're doing that. So, as we wrap up, let's say we had a one-minute video shoot and you were going to say, this is the main threat to optometry and what optometrists should think about doing about it. What would be Mm -hmm. that that one-minute PSA you would publish for optometrists?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we touched on it a little bit. So To me, the one threat is this lack of education of the consumer in general, of the role that an optometrist plays in the healthcare continuum right how how critical a role they play and just a quick example i actually i learned this from dr manning at, during this pandemic time as we were talking about ods of the future and where they need to be but in 2017 the stat is over 400,000 i think 401,000 cases of diabetes was were diagnosed by ods the first time a person learned that they had diabetes was when they were sitting in their optometrist's chair. That's, that's mind-blowing to me. 400,000 people were walking around like a ticking time bomb with this disease that's devastating the country. And, and thank goodness for the, that doctor to, to, to show them and then hopefully get them on that path. The, the biggest threat is not getting not spending more time, energy and effort on educating the public of the role they play. One of the things I've loved of late, and I, I surely hope as we try to uh, get the COVID vaccine um, pushed along, I'd love to see optometrists be one of those distribution points where you know people come in, uh, they can get their COVID vaccine, and oh, by the way, you can get your comprehensive eye exam all in the same day. And then to me, it, right away, it flips the switch of how I think about that doctor. Th- that doctor's not just about, you know, ones and twos and what's I'm seeing better and upgrading my pr- prescription. It's they're there to help me take care of my overall health and wellness. So to me, is the biggest threat is that us as an industry not getting behind that 100% and moving that along quicker. I think, I think dentistry, and I know people have heard it ad nauseum. But they did such a wonderful job back in the day of of promoting going to your dentist twice a year and and the importance to your not only oral health but your overall health. We optometrists deserve that and all of us in the industry need to figure out a way to 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 support that and get that out. I think if that if that changes and that um, that perspective can be changed and that education can happen, the sky's the limit because, you have so much opportunity, aging population, high inc- higher incidence of eye diseases that, you know, sadly that we, you know, because of the high incidence of diabetes and diabetic retinopathy, th- those are, but those create opportunity in those practices that, you know, they, they need to take advantage of. And the other, the other part, and my, you know, my friends in Managed Vision Care won't be thrilled for me to say it, but if you think about it, you have over 160 million Americans covered by some form of a of a managed vision care plan. And and when you look at the total number of exams given in the year, it's so much less than that. So there's just that opportunity for people to leverage something that they already have that will increase the pie and grow the pie for the industry. So it's really about the it's really about the opportunity. Uh, the opportunity is there and we need optometry to, to achieve and, and get, and we need to help and support it, their rightful place in that healthcare continuum. And then I think sky's the limit.
0: When I was working with the AOA committee that founded the Infant C program, we studied an article in the American Public Health Association Journal that actually outlined the support of dental product companies, particularly toothpaste companies, in helping the public understand the importance of periodic care. Um, I'm very fortunate to have both my wife's father and her grandfather having owned a dental supply business, and their mission, their entire time they were in business, with both dental products for dentists and dental products for patients, was to commit to telling the story of the importance of going to see that person who takes care of your teeth. And so I compel all the product companies and managers and care plans and everybody else to help tell the doctor's story. It's much more objectively received when it comes from them. And I know that we can look back on your story and your support as a non-ECP and, and what we do together as you talk about us as a we family. I can't thank you enough for all the things yeah. that you've done for ECPS, and uh, it's
1: really been an honor to tell your story. Thanks for being here, Jim. No, it's my my pleasure, Scott. It's been you know, and, and just quickly, just if I could, you know, for me, the the one of the greatest things I got to do during the time at VSP was spend a lot of time in our in our charity care programs and spend time on the mobile clinics. And and again, like I said, it's it's the doctors that help the people see, and it's it always amazes me to watch you guys practice your craft. But. You know, watching someone who hasn't had an eye exam that's say forty-five years old and has just had poor eyesight and just not realize it, watching them put glasses on and seeing a family member or seeing, you know, we always hear seeing the leaves in a tree, there's there's nothing more moving than, than that. And it will it will keep me focused on this as long as I can. And and, and, and I'm I'm honored that I'm allowed to be a part of it. So you know, thank you for um, for giving me the time to, to speak with you today. It was great to catch up, and, and I love being a part of this industry.
0: It's a great pleasure. And you guys can find Jim at the Healthy Eyes Advantage website. For the audience, as always, thanks for your attention. And until our next inbox story, be great and all you do.